Well, good morning again, everybody. It's serious great to see everybody here today. And let's give our uh, leadership, our singers, our choir, our orchestra great praise this morning. If we can do that, you do it over at Spanish Trail for those who have led you this morning. We're so grateful to be led at both campuses by wonderful leadership, and so God bless each and every one of you. Welcome to all of our guests today here and at our Spanish Trail campus. Be sure to visit the Next Step Center. Be sure to complete a guest registration card at both of our locations. If you've not done that, we want to know a little bit about you, and we want you to know just beginning today that we're really thankful uh, that you're here this morning. And again, a special welcome to those of you that are with us online who can't be at one of our locations today or friends of Hillcrest watching uh, here in our country or around the world somewhere. God bless each and every one. Uh, Let me make you aware of a couple of things uh, today that you need to know at both locations. First of all, uh, be aware that uh, next Saturday, men's breakfast uh, for Hillcrest guys uh, at, I uh, believe it's at 8 o'clock next Saturday. We need you guys to register for that. J.R. Butler, our guy in North Africa, is going to be sharing a good word with us. And we won't be together too awfully long, so we'll get in, have some great fellowship, eat some good food, and let you get on with the rest of your day. But we do need you to register. You can do that online or just call the church office. We kind of need to know how much food to prepare. So we'd love to have everybody at both campuses come and join us this coming Saturday here at the Nine Mile Campus. Our Bibles are open to Colossians chapter number two. I'm just thoroughly enjoying this study in this power-packed message in which we're learning that it's all about Jesus. Christ alone is our answer really for everything that relates to life and eternity And we're really excited about this message today, which is one of the most important passages in Colossians. Again, what we're going to look at this morning is part and parcel of why Paul wrote the letter uh, to begin with. If there are any baseball fans in the house today, and I know that there are, you recognize that last week ended the World Series. And the World Series was between the Houston Astros and the Washington Nationals. And Washington won the World Series for the first time since uh, they've been the Washington Nationals. Two great teams, seven-game series. Over the course of the history of the World Series, uh, there's nothing unusual about a series going seven games. It's the 40th time in the history of professional baseball that that's happened. And I don't know if you're aware of it or not, though, but something very unusual did happen in this World Series that's never happened before. Namely, no team won a game on their home field. Washington won four games to win the series, and they won all four games at Houston. Houston won three games, and they won all three games at Washington. That's never happened before in the history of professional baseball. And uh, it should be a very unusual thing because obviously these are two of the best teams, if not two of, uh, not the best teams of all, playing in the World Series. There's a lot of mojo that you get by playing on your own home field. You've got a packed house of rabid fans that are pulling for you and screaming against the other team, right? So you would think that you'd have that momentum and that most of the time, the great majority of the time, that that kind of stuff would help propel you uh, to victory. But it was not to be the case. Both of those teams won their games on hostile, alien territory And there's a lot to be said for that because it shows great courage and the reality that even in hostile surroundings, they never quit. 
Now that ought to be immediately applicable to the Christian life because the Bible teaches that we're not playing on our home field either. We're living in enemy territory called the world. Our home is not here. We're citizens of an eternal kingdom called heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there. But our Savior saves us and then by design leaves us here on a foreign field. And there's a battle that we face every day on this foreign field. And that's the theme that we pick up once again today as we come to Colossians chapter 2. Paul continues to unpack this incredible power of Christ alone. And Christ alone is the sufficient source of every need of our life. Paul is trying to get this young fledgling church at Colossae to recognize that they themselves are living in an otherworldly territory, enemy territory. It's another worldly life. And he wants us to know then as now that as we live on foreign territory, we face hostility, uh, enemies, uh, forces, spiritual forces, visible forces, invisible forces. They may be charming and sophisticated people that speak words that seem to be very attractive to us, but they have a mission to overwhelm us. They have a mission to defeat us by winning us to their sophisticated arguments and their sophisticated worldview, which has nothing to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here in Colossians 2, beginning in verse 16, Paul continues to elaborate <clears throat> on this very dangerous spiritual landscape that exists in Colossae, and he issues a warning not only to them then, but to all of us today who navigate the same minefield virtually every day of our life. We're going to focus this morning here, Colossians 2, beginning in verse 16. Everybody ready to read? Say amen. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you're still alive in the world, do you submit to its regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts, and human teachings. These indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Father, we're grateful this morning to be here and we're thankful for your word. And as we look at this very important warning that still has such great impact to those of us who are alive 2,000 years after it was written. We pray that your spirit would speak to us, illumine our minds, open up our hearts, 
Help us to hear God's word and may the spirit of God imply it in such a way that it helps us to break the chains of this world so that we may live freely in and through the risen Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray and all God's people said, amen. Now, one of the primary points of this passage is that simply, I mean, whenever anybody embraces an approach to God other than the gospel, and that's really what this passage is all about, all these false teachers in Colossae who were preaching all this sophisticated way to find God and to know God and to get to God that was totally unlike the gospel that Paul had preached and that Epaphras was preaching in the church there at Colossae. And Paul wants us to know whenever that happens, Whenever anybody presents to you an approach to God other than the gospel that is Jesus Christ, his person and work on the cross, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, that person, if they embrace that teaching, they will submit themselves to a life of unproductive, unfulfilling, meaningless, repetitive bondage that will profit them nothing throughout the total of their life. There is but one escape. There is one hope. And that is the chain-breaking Savior who is Jesus Christ. Paul gives us three things that we can know not only about Jesus, but most importantly about what Jesus alone can do for your life and for mine. The first thing that he reminds us is that Jesus breaks the chains of legalism, of legalism. And of course, by legalism, I'm talking about a system that elevates the keeping of religious rules and religious regulations and religious requirements as a condition for earning the acceptance of God. Now, there is an ethical morality in Christianity, but you don't live ethically in order for God to accept you. In fact, the Bible says we're dead in sin and we can't do that, even if we try really hard. And so the problem with religious rules is when they're presented as a way not only to earn the acceptance of God, but as a a way to earn the acceptance of the group, which happens much of the time in churches, I'm afraid. Our tendency over the years has been to kind of foist a self-concocted, self-made way of finding God and of living for God, we hoist that upon people and say, now here's the deal, as long as you keep these rules, not only will God will accept, uh, will God accept you, but we'll accept you too. So all we have to do is abide by the code. That's what the legalist wants us to do. Receive the code, I'm gonna give you the code, you live by the code, abide by the code. But the problem with that is most of the time, the code that we present to people is far beyond what the scriptures actually require of people. Everybody with me? Say amen. We tend to make up the code according to what we've received from elders before us or from family before us or whatever the case might be. And we tend to go outside of the boundaries of the Bible and mark people in terms of their ability to keep that code that we give. And when they don't, we reject them, and we conclude falsely, of course, that God has rejected them too. Now, we don't know everything about these false teachers in Colossae, uh, but whatever they were doing and whatever they were teaching and whoever they were, uh, it pertained here, first of all, Paul says, to matters of eating and drinking, and also matters of certain calendar days or festivals. Paul doesn't think too highly of it, and we learn that in verse 16. Let no one pass judgment upon you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon 
or a Sabbath day. So the point of contention, first of all, was over two things, diet on the one hand, what you ate or drank, and days on the other. The calendar days or the religious observances or the religious festivals uh, that you adhered to, both of those, many people were teaching, were ways to find God. There were ways to get God to accept you. You just attach yourself to the food laws, you attached yourself to the diet code, you attached yourself to the Sabbath code or to the festival code, and as long as you did those things, you would be in good shape with God. And for Paul, of course, that was not a new argument. He would face it in Corinth over issues of meat sacrificed to idols. He would face it in Romans, again, over issues of food and drink and over the same issue of festival days or Sabbath days. Can you eat this kind of meat? and still be a believer, and still know God? Will you go straight to hell if you drink this kind of beverage, or that kind of beverage, or play this kind of game, or that kind of game? And we could add a thousand things to that list that's been piled up over time by the church over the last 2,000 years. Now again, we don't know the full nature of the false teaching that was going on here, but there's no question that this is coming from a Jewish quarter, right? Because these all go straight back to the Old Testament Levitical food laws. Those food laws that you find and the festival laws that you find in Leviticus and Deuteronomy and other places straight out of the Mosaic law of the Old Testament. And the argument over that comes straight out, not only straight out of the Bible, but it's something that Paul had to deal with throughout most all of his ministry, if not all of his ministry. It was being pushed by Jews who had been at least one initially to a hearing about Jesus Christ, but they didn't want to give up their way of life. And so they began to say, you know what, the gospel is a great thing, but we have to add something to the gospel. And so once again, we're getting back to this, not Christ alone, but Christ plus as a means of knowing God. Paul dealt with that from the Judaizers in Galatia over the issue of circumcision. Same kind of issue, different type of argument, but they were pushing, we don't have a problem with Gentiles following Jesus, they just have to be circumcised before they can be saved or as a condition of salvation. Drove Paul crazy. Same thing is happening here over what they could eat or couldn't eat or what they had to observe in terms of what came up on the calendar at any given time and any given year. This is what you have to do in order for God to love you and accept you. But that's legalistic thinking. And Paul gives, once again, this resounding no. In fact, he knew well, as we should know well, that Jesus had already addressed that issue in his own ministry when he told the Pharisees, who were the most notorious legalists in the history of the world, do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his what? His stomach. And is expelled. That's kind of graphic for a Sunday morning, isn't it? But then notice what Mark declares in parentheses. Thus, he declared all foods what? All foods clean. That's right. So there's no question about that. Uh, That makes the issue very clear for us today, especially, and it should have made it clear for them then. Those food laws and those feasts and those festivals and even the Sabbath day itself had served their purpose in terms of foreshadowing the coming of the ultimate Savior, in whom we would find the full intention that God had given all of those things. Those things served their purpose for a time to mark Israel 
as belonging to God. That's what made them unique. Circumcision was a physical sign that showed their uniqueness among all the people of the earth. The food laws, observing the Sabbath, all of those things were marks that God had given to his people to distinguish them from the pagan nations around them, to show them that this is a unique people and they belong to me. And their participation in these things indicates not only their uniqueness, but the fact that I am present with them and that I have called them and that I have chosen them. But those things are no longer necessary now that Jesus has come. Christ, in his coming, fulfilled the purpose of all of those. And that's what Paul means in verse 17 when he said, these, all these things are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to whom? Belongs to Christ. Well, there's a big deal between shadow and reality. The shadow is murky. It's kind of mystical. It changes its shape. It's not the reality. The reality for us is everything that Christ has accomplished for us. And this is why Jesus would come along later and said, here's the thing. You don't take new wine and put it in old what? Wine skins. No, you got to have a whole new system. You have a whole new a set of wineskins to hold the new wine because if you try to take the new wine and put it in old wineskins, uh, it'll burst them wide open. And he was, of course, talking about the newness of things that was being inaugurated in his coming. Old things pass away, and in Christ, all things become what? New. Twice in this letter, and everybody in here ought to know this by now, twice in this letter, Jesus is described as the what? The fullness of God. So now, in light of the cross, we don't need the Sabbath, and we don't need the feast, and we don't need the festivals, and we don't need the dietary food laws as marks of God's ownership on us because all of those have been replaced by what? Can you say it together with me? Christ in you, the hope of glory. Not festivals, not the Sabbath day, not food laws. You try to keep those things, there's no hope in them because you can't keep them well. No, those were given for a time as God's mark upon his people, but they've all been replaced by the coming of Christ in us. Jesus is the mark that we belong to God. And the writer of the Hebrews will talk about Jesus now being our Sabbath rest. We don't observe the Sabbath. We might call the Sunday the Sabbath. Sunday's not the Sabbath day. Now, if it blesses your heart to worship the Lord on a Sabbath day, that's fine. You can worship the Lord on a Sabbath day, just not as a condition for knowing God. No, we've been set free from all of that. Christ has fulfilled all of the law, and by so doing, what has he done? He's broken the chains of legalism and set us free forever. Can I just say it this morning? Legalism is a killer, man. It's a killer in churches. I'm convinced that more people have ended up in hell as a knee-jerk reaction to legalism than ever have ended up in hell because of gambling or because of alcohol or because of any of all those other things that we foist upon them and saying, this is what you need to do in order to be a good Christian. I mean, to be sure, there are some things a believer ought not do. Can I have an amen? amen? When the Bible says don't do it, you ought not do it. But I'm not talking about what the Bible says. There are some choices that are clearly wrong for a believer. And then there are others that even though they're biblically permissible, they're not always wise for a believer. 
And with most of these issues, the question isn't really, is it right or wrong, but is it wise or unwise? And some things, even though you may be free to do them, you're better off not doing them if by doing them you're going to blow up the unity of the church or offend somebody in the process. Because the Bible also teaches that in the kingdom of God, love always trumps the freedom to do what you know you can do. Love is always more important than that. And can I just say another thing now that I'm on a roll this morning? I'm going to make everybody mad this morning. Just because you're free to do it doesn't mean you're free to flaunt it. I'm amazed at what people post in social media. Just throw it out into people's faces. Listen, just because you're free to do it doesn't mean you're free to flaunt it. And there are some pictures better left unposted. Some things are just better done privately. Do them privately, and if you can bring glory to God while you're doing them privately, do them privately. But you don't have to post everything. Most of us don't care. But the Bible is very clear here. The Bible is clear that regarding all these myriads of gray area life choices, particularly as a position or as a condition rather of knowing God and living spiritually, let no one judge you. Some will, and you can't stop that. But don't let that shackle your life when Jesus died to break the chains of legalism. Everybody tracking with me this morning? Amen. Secondly, Jesus breaks the chains of mysticism. Not only legalism, but mysticism. Some of the false teaching was Jewish in flavor. That much is obvious from what we just read. But not all of it was Jewish. And there was all kind of stuff getting blended together in what we call syncretistic teaching. Just kind of a hodgepodge of all kinds of different things. And some of that wasn't Jewish. It was just pagan mysticism. And that's what you see reflected in verse 18. Paul begins in verse 17, let no one judge you. He says in verse 18, let no one disqualify you. Insisting on asceticism and worship of angels. Going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body grows with a growth that is from God. And those last couple of phrases there, I think, are critical because they reflect the fundamental reason why Paul writes this letter. Because there were some within the body and some outside the body that, what was the problem? They were not holding fast to the head. They weren't clinging diligently to Jesus Christ and to Christ alone as the sole sufficient source of eternal life and fellowship with God. They had moved away from Christ. They had moved away from the gospel. And many of them were dabbling in all kinds of mystical, spiritual experiences. And they were saying that through these signs that they had been given and these visions that they were having, they knew they were through these truly connected to God, spiritually strong, because this is what spiritually strong people do. We have these things that border on hallucinations, these visions that God gives us. And what happened was that tended to puff them up with pride. And Paul knew it. Instead of being built up in Christ, Paul says it here, they were puffed up in themselves. And they may have been walking around, shuffling their feet with this all shucks mentality about their ability, well, yeah, I can see things and I can envision things and I can discern things in the supernatural world. 
Paul didn't buy a word of it, and he calls them out as the proudest people in the room. It was all about them. I mean, these were the ones that were flaunting everything out on social media. Amen. And Paul says, this is not humility. You're just puffed up with pride. I mean, and among other things, they were claiming to worship angels. Something, by the way, that no genuinely mature follower of the Lord Jesus Christ would ever claim to do. There's like the first commandment, amen. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Twice in the book of Revelation, the apostle John's having these heavenly experiences and he encounters an angel and he falls down at the angel to worship the angel and the angel looks at him both times and says, what in the world are you doing? Get up off the ground, son. We are not God. God created us just like he created you. Worship God alone. I'm amazed at how much fascination there is, even among evangelical conservative circles and angels. Fascination with angels. It may not be worship, but sometimes it's borderline worship. People talk about angels of darkness, and they talk about angels of light, and people speak of heavenly angels, and there's a song about earth angels, and then there are fallen angels and archangels. People talk about having angels on their shoulder. People talk about having angels in the outfield. I don't know what that's all about. (laughs) Hollywood has Charlie's angels. Pensacola has blue angels. (laughs) I'm told you can be guarded by an angel, attended to by an angel, counseled by an angel, even touched by an angel. But I'm telling you this morning, don't you ever worship an angel. Because all genuine worship belongs to to our holy God and to God alone. Listen, the test of true maturity is not whether or not you worship angels or have some out-of-body supernatural vision. The test of spiritual maturity is, am I holding on to Christ? Is my life focused on Christ alone? This summer, my family and I were hiking up in the western Rockies of Montana, we were on a long hike one day, and along the way, we encountered a man, middle-aged guy, probably in his upper 50s or early 60s, who had uh, joined up with a young couple, and they were walking along uh, behind us, and at one point, we passed them, and they got behind us, and we could hear their conversation, and he was talking about visions that he was having. He had all these visions, and he was legitimately bragging about it to this young couple who was captivated by his stories. The moon spoke to this man, and he began to tell them about how driving to work in the middle of the day, he'd have visions of the moon, and the moon would have voices coming from it and provide him guidance and wisdom about which direction and then he would couch it in terms of God and his relationship with God that God spoke to him through these voices that came out of the moon oftentimes in the middle of the day. Whitney and Derek who had been behind us managed to pass them and she came up to me and she said dad what in the world was that guy talking about and I said honey I don't know something about a cow jumping over the moon I don't know what it was and And I said, whatever it was, we just need to keep walking because all this talk about grizzly bears, I'll tell you one thing, I'm a whole lot more afraid of that guy than I am any grizzly bear in this park. I mean, whatever you do, Paul says, don't let anybody disqualify your testimony by telling you that you have to have all of this other stuff in addition to Jesus Christ. You don't need anything but Jesus Christ. Christ in you is more 
than enough. And let me just say, now that I'm making everybody mad this morning, I'm absolutely astounded at how many people will live, leave solid, Christ-centered, Bible-preaching churches because it doesn't give them enough warm fuzzies. I've known a lot of people in my time that are constantly looking for the latest fad and the newest thing in Christianity. And when they become bored with historic Christianity and bored with the Word of God, they set out to find some new emotional experience that they think is going to rock their world. Let me tell you, it might scratch an inch for a while, but what you going to do when the emotions go away? And they always do. I mean, if you're looking for spiritual growth in anything other than, and how can anybody ever get bored with a Bible like this that's got more spiritual truth than any one adult can possibly absorb in a thousand lifetimes? No, you don't need anything else. All you need is Jesus as revealed in the Word of God. Help, heaven help us if our worship is not Spirit-inspired, Holy Spirit-driven, Holy Spirit-led, but here's the thing, the substance always belongs to Christ and to Christ alone. Anything else is what Paul calls up in verse 8, empty deceit. Jesus breaks the chains of legalism. Can I have an amen? Jesus breaks the chain of mysticism. Can I have an amen? But then finally notice that Jesus breaks the chains of asceticism. And I use the word asceticism because Paul uses it twice here in the text. It's not easy to spell, so I think we went ahead and just spelled it in your notes. You can thank me later. <laughs> but it is not complicated to understand what that is because an ascetic is just somebody that avoids any kind of creature comfort. They're hyper-simplists into very simplistic approaches to life. And so they avoid creature comforts as a way to spiritual advancement. And so sometimes that can involve extreme self-discipline, giving just about everything up that the rest of the world chases after. Uh, and not only that, sometimes, especially in times past, but even today, people could be so ascetic that they would actually like abuse their body physically, whipping themselves and cutting themselves and doing things to their body as a means of spiritual advancement. Now, let me just say this morning, y'all still with me say Amen. Not all asceticism is necessarily a bad thing. Fasting, for example, is a spiritual discipline, but that's an act of asceticism when you give up food. But you give it up. Here's the thing about fasting. We don't fast in order to be saved. We don't fast as a condition of walking with the Lord. We fast purposely from time to time for a spiritual season because our desire is through that fasting, we might have a greater clarity about the will of the Lord and we might focus more intently on Jesus Christ. See, there's a big difference between saying you've got to give this stuff up in order for God to accept you and giving something up for a season in order to focus more intently on Jesus Christ and his plan and purpose for your life. Everybody tracking with me? Hey, John the Baptist was an ascetic. One coarse camel coat, one leather belt, one pair of leather sandals, a diet of bugs and honey. I mean, if that's not an ascetic, I don't know what is. Something tells me you would not find uh, John the Baptist making a reservation for a steak at Jackson's. Everybody with me? You wouldn't find him being suited uh, for clothing at Joseph A. Bank. No, he was an ascetic. He lived exclusively, simply, 
But in his simplicity, he was fulfilling his role as pointing people to Christ. You see the difference? He didn't do any of that stuff as a condition for God to accept him or in order to be saved. He did it so people would listen to his message, which was a message about the coming of the one to come. So we focus on the Lord Jesus Christ, but that wasn't the case with the false teachers in Colossae. I mean, their acts of giving stuff up, self-abasement, had a hidden agenda. They were actually promoting themselves. Self-promotion was what it was all about. Paul wanted nothing to do with them. Verse 20, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to its regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used. There's that graphic image again according to the human precepts or according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom, an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But they are of what? Say it out loud, please. They are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh, which is just another way of saying You can give everything up in the world and have this strict adherence to a moral code, even if it means depriving yourself of all these creature comforts or even abusing your own body, but it is of no value when it comes to salvation because those choices do nothing to change the desires of your heart. So you can give all that stuff up, but by giving it up, it doesn't mean that in your heart you don't crave them and wish you had them. And that's the problem, isn't it? That stuff can't change you on the inside. And Paul knew it. And so he comes along and he says, here's the thing. Salvation is not about depriving yourself. It's about dying to yourself. You don't have to give anything up to know God except you. You got to die inside. You have to die to the flesh. Put off the body of the flesh, Paul said. And the only way to do that is not by what you do, it's by what you believe. The way you die to the flesh is by being crucified with Christ, and the way you crucified with Christ is trusting what Jesus did to save you. That's our only hope. So you can avoid certain foods, you can celebrate certain days, you can uh, turn your back on certain luxuries in life, and you can seek all these super spiritual visions and experiences, but none of that matters when it comes to life with God. It does not matter. It is of no value because that stuff can't conquer the flesh. It can't put to death in you what has to be put to death in order for you to receive the righteousness of Christ, which you must have in order to connect to a holy God. It's like Paul told the Galatians in Galatians 6, 14. Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of Christ Jesus our Lord because neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, neither visions nor visions, neither Sabbath days nor Sabbath days, neither festivals nor festivals, no matter what it is, none of that stuff means anything. What counts is a new creation. You must be born again. Everybody tracking with me, say amen. 
So when it comes to salvation and spiritual growth, here's what you got to do. Stick to the gospel. Stick to the gospel. Don't bail out on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let no one judge you when it comes to the gospel. Let no one disqualify you when it comes to the gospel. Let no one enslave you when it comes to the gospel. For if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Thank God we have a chain-breaking Savior who is all-sufficient for our every need. His name is Jesus Christ, and he wants to live within your life now and forevermore. Amen. Amen. This is God's Word, and let all who agree shout amen this morning.